part seven, mostly about Revelation 20, has it been fulfilled, the millennium, what, what are the different views of the millennium, which we've covered, and now we've been into the resurrection. And there is the big debate uh, between preterists and everybody else. Most preterists believe that the resurrection is spiritual, and everybody else believes it is physical. And we're going to start right off after we sing the Word of God and say a prayer and sit in silence. We're going to talk about one of the best examples in Scripture as to why people believe that the resurrection is physical. And uh, I think you're going to be excited about what we discover from those passages. So let's pray and get to it. Lord, we love you and grateful for the facilities that we have here and the freedom to meet in a country that allows us to have these... uh, freedoms of religion. We're grateful for our, our weather here in Utah and grateful for the beautiful surroundings. We're grateful for this world and people who are watching all over the place are able to tune in with us and uh, join in for these discussions. We pray your spirit will guide and we'll be able to be enlightened to the things that you want us to know, the philosophies and teachings of man, even those that come from me or from the Q&A at the end or comments. That they'll just be forgotten, and we'll be able to move forward in faith and, and serve you. Uh, we won't major in the minors. We won't minor in the majors. We'll just look to the cross. We'll look to you as our Lord and Savior, and then try to put all the rest of this in some sort of fashion that would be pleasing to our walk here on earth. Help us to exit here better Christians through the study, not just in our understanding and our knowledge of information, but in our heart toward those who need you, our brothers and sisters who have you, and uh, those who reject you. We pray for these things, Lord, now in Jesus' name. Amen. One, two, three, four. One, two, three. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by
shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not
Okay, uh, Revelation part, uh, chapter 20, part 7. I was interviewed a while, uh, a few weeks ago, and um, by John DeLynn on Mormon Stories, and he, uh, he said, how come you haven't done a, a mega church? You know, when you were on your heyday on TV, you could have started a mega church. And, um, and I didn't say this then, but the thought uh, occurs to me sometimes is that in that setting, which is, is great for lifestyle, etc., you're not free to change your mind very much. You can't say, I'm a futurist, teach futurism, and then change and say, I'm a preterist. It just doesn't work in the, in the megachurch model. It's the consistency of traditions that are passed down. So I, I, it, I think that this is a far better approach for me personally, because as I read the scripture, I'm able to say, uh, well, this is what I was taught. This is what everyone believes. This is what these commentators say. They pretty much agree with that. But I see something differently. And then you discover other people who do too, who have done homework on it. And that's the case with what we're going to talk about right now. I love to have a teaching where I think the people who are present will walk away with some, a new view. And that is the case with what we're covering. So we left off with Matthew 27, verses 52 and 53 which is I teach and have been teaching that the resurrection is spiritual. And whether it begins while we're here on earth and, and because we're spiritually born again and continues on afterward as we get a spiritual body after this life, most traditional Christian views, the orthodoxy is, no, Jesus is coming back. And when he does, the graves are going to open and everybody's going to come out of those graves regenerated with their corrupt body turning uh, uh, incorrupt, but having elbows and knees and in a glorified manner. When I was LDS, they taught that you'll be in your perfect state, which for me would be right now. Uh, but uh, no, but they'd say you'll be when you'll be like you were when you were 18 and things like that to explain the physical resurrection. But the passages in, in Matthew 27, 52 and 53 are passages that people who support a material, physical resurrection from the grave use to support their idea. And it has caught the attention of believers for centuries because um, uh, it apparently supports physical resurrection. So let's look at the verses together just for a minute. In Matthew 27, uh, verses 50 through 54, it says, Jesus is on the cross, by the way. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, 
and the rocks split. So at this point, we enter into our passages that support physical resurrection in the minds of most people. The tombs broke open, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs. And after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. So those four passages are something that people say, Jesus is going to be resurrected in three days. He's going to come out of the tomb. He's going to have his physical body. And we have that occurring in some sense or another here with other holy people that actually went into Jerusalem and were seen by many. So, Sean, shut your mouth when you talk about a spiritual resurrection, even though 1 Corinthians 15 suggests strongly that's what it is. This clearly tells us that's what's going to happen. Well, the first thing I want you to notice, I'm going to take you on a little journey, that if you read these passages taking out verses 52 and 53, they, they read really well. So, and when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice and gave up his spirit, at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn from t in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. When the centurion and those with him were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. So if you extract those verses out, you can say it works, right? So let's work through the surrounding elements regarding these passages and see if, if we look at the Patristic Fathers and if we look at other passages and we look at the text itself, if we can determine first, were these inserted into the text by someone who wanted to prove that the resurrection is physical for human beings, like the Johannine comma was inserted in 1 John 5, where the Trinity explanation, every scholar on earth who's a biblical says it was inserted to support the Trinity. Well, is that happening here? And I'll give you my answer and we'll continue to talk. Now, we have to admit openly that these two verses are in Greek and Latin and Aramaic and they don't omit them. That's a big win right there for it being authentic that they actually were there, and so we're going to give them that. It's in the manuscripts as far back as we can go. So this means that these verses are legitimate unless some zealous script uh, copyist decided to insert them very early on in the church uh, manuscripts. So that's a possibility. We see it in two or three places only in the entire New Testament. I mentioned Johannine commas one. So I'm not trying to undermine the word of God. It's not undermineable. We know which passages aren't in the original manuscripts, in the manuscripts that we have at least, and, uh, and haven't been all the way going back. So, although it's really unusual to have an addition to the text in a, in a, a manuscript, it's been known to happen, and you guys know the instances. The Great Commission is one too, by the way that if you really study the Great Commission, in, again, in the book of Matthew, Jesus uh, is said to say, 
Go ye preaching and baptizing in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we have problems with the manuscript evidence. We have problems with the early church fathers saying it. And we have problems with um, them actually doing it. Because in the book of Acts, they don't baptize in the name of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. They baptize in Jesus' name. Every one of them. They never ever see the Trinity model there. So it's believed that perhaps this is a second one where some zealous scribe in early times inserted it into the manuscript to support the teachings of the early believers. A good book on that is One God and One Lord. Um, you can look it up. It's by someone named Grazer and Lynn and Shonite. So we also note 1 John includes those insertions. So we have to say, okay, well, what did the early church fathers do, early church leaders? And uh, did they cite Matthew 27, 52, and 53 in their writings? And uh, the early church writers certainly did. Let me just give you a few names. Ignatius, who lived from 3580 to 107, that is really concurrent with the church age. He includes it in his writings. And Irenaeus, 130 to 200, uh, he includes it. Clement of Alexandria includes it. Tertullian ex includes it. Julius Africanus includes it. Um, Hippolytus of Rome, that's 170 to 230. We're going out, includes it. Eusebius, the great church historian, 260 to 340, includes it. And Alexander of Alexandria includes it all the way out in 328. So we have another support that it's valid. This is a valid set of scriptures according to the Patristic Fathers. But we are faced with some problems with the, the presentation of Matthew 52 and 53. First of all, it says that many of the Holy Old Testament saints, that's who it would be, many of those who had died, and if they had died during Jesus' day, they would have been considered still of the Old Covenant. Many of the uh, saints arose and went to Jerusalem how come no apostle who is writing mentions them in their uh, recordings of their epistles? Why don't they say, and these saints were doing this, and those who were raised from the dead and came to Jerusalem were around doing this? We don't have that anywhere. Uh, think about this. Among the holy saints, most scholars think that when it says that, it's talking about those who were truly holy in the Old Testament. Not just someone who passed away a few years before Jesus was at the cross, but he's talking about the holy saints like uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and David were the ones who rose from the grave and walked into Jerusalem. So that's how it's interpreted by most of the scholars I considered. They rose and walked about. Nobody anywhere says this, not even, and Josephus doesn't mention it anywhere either, and he's pretty good on mentioning the radical things that were coming out of Christianity in, in terms of context of history. He doesn't say there are any of these holy guys wandering around. So, even when Lazarus, just to give you an example, when it became known that he was raised after three days, three days only of being in the grave, fame went out and about and scripture tells us that many came to see him. And because of his fame, we know from other sources that his life was in danger for supporting what Jesus' power was. So this is a fantastic question. How come it's not mentioned? The traditional answer is they didn't join with any of the apostles. They didn't go and see Peter or John or Andrew. And they're not mentioned anywhere else because 
when they rose from the dead, they were in glorified bodies. They were not recognizable. And at some point, perhaps shortly after witnessing themselves to others in Jerusalem who said they saw them, and Matthew recorded it, they ascended up into heaven and they wouldn't have been around even for the day of Pentecost. So that's how it's explained. That's how the body re bodily resurrection of these holy saints right then is explained by so many people. However, it can't be because scripture is very clear that Jesus is the first fruits of them that slept. So it's impossible for verse 52 and 53 to be speaking of a resurrection uh, chronologically. So it has to be an anachronistic approach to the scripture. They have to be, the writer of uh, Matthew has to be saying somehow in the context of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, after he was resurrected, resurrected then these others also came forward. And that's how most um, defenders of the faith explain it. That it doesn't mean because they put it in this chronological order that that's how it happens. What it means is that when Jesus was on the cross and he gave up the ghost and the temple was rent and the earthquakes happened, the tombs were open. Three days go by. Jesus, the first fruits of the grave, is resurrected. And then the holy saints came out and showed themselves too. And that's how those verses are rearranged to, to explain themselves by scholars. And that would not be a far-fetched because the Hebrews don't speak in chronological order. They speak in terms of kind of the whole picture. And they do that sometimes. It's not chron chronology. So I would, I would accept that if it wasn't for some of the other factors that aren't making sense. So there's a chronological issue. Jesus is the first fruits, which is not a biggie. I don't think that the case here is there is a problem with chronology. I propose to you this right here. What is written is exactly right, is exactly correct. Adam's snoring, so someone please bother him. Is this gonna get picked up by my microphone? That's the effect I have on people. Adam, you're sleeping, brother. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think we have, over the years, misread and misinterpreted these passages, and as we have done with many other passages, and I'm going to be bold enough to say, I think I understand the problem, and I want you to test it. This is what is said. When Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He died. Two, at that moment, that's what it says, the curtain of the temple was torn from two uh, into from top to bottom by God. No more priesthood. The earth shook and the rocks split. It could be that God tore the temple in two by taking the frame with the earth shaking and just having it tear that way. Okay? Then the next verse. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. I suggest our mistake is to say raised to life means resurrection there. I stand by this insight and I want you to challenge it because everyone else thinks it means they were resurrected. But it doesn't say that. It says they were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, 
they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And then the centurion, uh, it goes back to the time stamp of, of the first verse, and it says, and during the earthquake, the centurion said, surely this was the Son of God. Listen, because Jesus is the first fruits of the grave, verses 52 and 53 are not describing a resurrection. I think it's chronological. Notice it doesn't say that they came forward resurrected. The term resurrected is used only in reference to Jesus. The, the English translation says these were raised to life. We have made the assumption it means they were resurrected. Now the onus is upon me to prove that raised to life is not synonymous with resurrected. Stay with me. The Matthew text refers to the holy people being raised when Jesus died. When he died, they were not resurrected. They were raised to life. Okay? So they could not have been raised to everlasting resurrection because Jesus hasn't been resurrected yet. But I maintain that at Jesus' death, these many holy people at the earthquake did come forth, listen, just as Nazareth, uh, Nazareth, Lazarus came forth after three days in the tomb. He came forth. He was not resurrected. He was dead. He stinketh, says his sister. But he was not resurrected. He died again. He died later. So he was brought to life. And that is what happened to these Old Testament saints. They were not resurrected. But when Jesus died, the graves opened up. Did Lazarus die again? He certainly did. Uh, or else Lazarus was the first fruits of the dead. So we know he wasn't. So we suggest that anyone who comes forth out of the tombs, raised to life, and the word resurrection isn't used, we might say, maybe that doesn't mean resurrection. So let me continue. They were brought back into their bodies after having been in the grave. Lazarus was three days. When Jesus died, these who came forward, maybe it was 30 days. Maybe it was 300 days. Maybe it was 3,000 days. And they came forth. They were anastatiad. That's the Greek term for resurrected. That is the Greek word that is used when it says, and when Jesus was resurrected, anastasia. And when Jesus was anastasia, they came forth. So, of course, some Bible teachers try to avoid the whole mess and conclude that when we read after his resurrection in verse 53, it's just talking about that, that whole picture view that the Hebrews don't talk in chronological order and they just justify it that way. But here's the problem. The Greek won't allow that. Uh, the raising from the dead mentioned here, the rising to life, clearly from the Greek sets the time of that happening at the death of Christ. So we have a huge issue. The Greek says at the death of Christ, the graves opened and they came out. The Christians have long said they were resurrected, therefore proving a bodily resurrection of people that the Greek doesn't allow for that, uh, that they came out after Jesus uh, resurrected. It says the timestamp is they came out when he died. So we have a decision to make. Other theologians point out that these holy ones didn't enter Jerusalem until after Jesus' resurrection, but this is kind of a game playing. This is illogical. They're like saying they, they came out of the tombs, but they stayed by and waited 
until Jesus' resurrection, and then they came forth into the city. The tombs were opened at his death. They came out, resurrected is the way some explain it. They hid in the woods until Jesus was resurrected, and then they showed themselves. Ballyhoo, he's the first fr- fruits of the, of the grave. So that, that order doesn't work. Um, Lazarus being raised after three days, this, I would suggest that when Jesus died, God showed, I can bring back people who have been dead 30,000 days. I can bring back to life, living life, anyone I want. It's not just limited to that three-day period of time. We also have to question as to why they stayed by their tombs or hid for three days when only Jesus was resurrected and then they came forward. For instance, let's say that Isaiah was one of these who was raised. I know I'm, 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 I'm explaining this a lot, but let's say that Isaiah was one of the ones in the tomb that broke open at the earthquake at Jesus' death. Some say he was resurrected then. I say he was brought only back to life, only to die later. But who would know it was Isaiah if he came out of the grave non-resurrected? Who would know it was Isaiah? Nobody. Nobody knew what Isaiah looked like. So a guy could have come forward and walked around and said, I'm Isaiah, I'm Isaiah, I'm Isaiah. And they could have said, well, you might be and you might not. But we can't tell. Um, If he was resurrected, he could prove that he was Isaiah by the fact that he could do what a resurrected body could do, a glorified body. It could go in and out of appearance. It could disappear. It could go through closed doors. So what I'm saying is the reason we don't have people writing about it is because they weren't resurrected beings. They were regular beings, and no one knew what those beings would even look like if they came out of the ground. They could profess, we came from the Old Testament. Then people would say, you just got yourself dirty, put on some rags, and are storming about, and we don't know. So that's why we have a vacancy in under, of anybody mentioning this anywhere else except in Matthew. Okay? So that's why I don't see there's any reason for the recordings. The recordings would be speculative at best. Um, then how long these holy forefathers, holy foremothers, walk the earth, we have to wonder. It doesn't tell us. It says they showed up in Jerusalem. Many saw them, but it doesn't say what happened to them. As resurrected beings or as just people brought back to life. What happened to them at Pentecost? Had they already returned to the grave? The number of disciples specifically mentioned at Pentecost was 120, about, I think. Not a large number. So we can be pretty certain that if some of them had been resurrected from the grave and were holy coming out of the grave and were resurrected, if they stood with the 120, Luke would have said there were 120 gathered at Pentecost, seven of them had come out of the grave and were holy. No mention like that. So they didn't join that group of the 120 at Pentecost. Uh, So in my estimation, those who were brought back to life were there for a very short time. They did not live the rest of their life much longer. They died, they returned to the dust, and would be resurrected at Christ's coming. That's how I would explain this. The problems I've just mentioned are not only difficult with these verses in Matthew, the vocabulary is difficult in Matthew. We look at two words here as they appear in these verses. Bodies is the first one, and resurrection is the second one. 
Vocabulary-wise, there's an issue. Verse 52 said, many bodies of holy people arose. Now, I might be straining at a gnat here, but this seems, seems strange because in Scripture, like when Lazarus came forward, a body didn't come forward. Lazarus came forward. But when it says their bodies came forward, maybe they lacked a name, so they couldn't name them, so they, all that's all they could say. But the, the use of the term bodies is strange to me. Therefore, it could be that this word body was used as a special vocabulary because body was a hot topic with the Gnostics at this time and was a hot topic with the Neoplatonists at this time and because they were teaching, they were infusing Christianity with their ideas about bodies. And there was argument going on with the apostles during this time of upheaval. And so it's possible that when Matthew was written, this was part of the, what was being said. And they used bodies specifically to resist Neoplatonists and Gnostic ideas about the physical body versus the soul of man. So there's that aspect to consider. But the most important thing is the word resurrection um, in Matthew 27, 53. In the Greek Old Testament, in the Septuagint, the word used here in Matthew 23 is used. It's the only two places where this word is used in the entire uh, Bible. One in Psalms 139.2, and one in Matthew 27. And it's describing what these holy people experienced. It's not Anastasia. So if you go to Psalms 139.2, it says, I know when I sit and when I rise. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that is, I know when I wake up from sleep or when I am rising up in the morning, so to speak. So although in church history, uh, this word is used in some of the uh, patristic fathers, it's adopted because it's used in Matthew 27 alone in the New Testament. Uh, I would suggest that there is, um, that when the word is used here in Matthew, that it means something very different from resurrection. Every other time we read resurrect, resurrection, it's Anastasia in the Greek. One time only in the entire Bible in the New Testament, is this word used. And one time in the Old. The old, old is about getting up. In the New Testament, it's about the same. And that, that word is egere. Egere is very different from Anastasia. Egere is used in this uh, instance. So that is something else that helps us see that it didn't say, and when these rose up, and we look at the Greek, and it doesn't say Anastasia. It does not. It uses a word that's not used anywhere else. That's the best evidence that they were not resurrected. And therefore, it puts away one of the great arguments that the resurrection for humans is physical. And I know I went to a lot to explain that, but it's interesting that some people use the record in Matthew to prove that there is life after death. There isn't a proof of that, even though I, of course, believe that. And it's not a proof of the resurrection either. Okay. So that's one difficult text to conflict with the idea that the resurrection for us, ever since Jesus overcame sin and death, ascended and returned, that the resurrection for everybody since has been spiritual and immediate upon their uh, death. Uh, but there are three more verses that I'm going to bring up, and I'm just going to read them to you right now, because they seem, just like the Matthew reference, to say, no, Sean, the resurrection is physical. It's physical, and we are waiting for it.
The first one's in Job 19.26. This is powerful. It was brought up to me last week by Elaine. Job says, And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I will see God. That's a hard one to, to, to refute. The next one is in Isaiah 26.19. It says, Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they rise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is as the dew of the herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. The earth shall cast out the dead, meaning it's like the earth will take the physical bodies of the dead and push them out so that they can be resurrected. And then Romans 11, 8, I mean 8, 11, which someone brought up last week, a great verse to kind of, Put it in the face of people who teach the spiritual resurrection. It says, But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. So how will that be explained? Um, <coughs> before I address those three verses, and I'll be honest, we're going to address them next week, which will launch us into part eight. Uh, which we'll get through, and then we're going to continue on finishing chapter 20. And then it's just an easy 21 and 22 revelation. We're going to be done before Christmas. So, um, But before I address these, I want to point out something that I think is important under the auspices of preterism, which is a word I really don't like. I, this past week, three times I've had to explain people it's not pedophilia. I don't know why they think it's pedophilia when you say it, but somehow that's what they hear. I'm a preterist. What? <laughs> no. So, fulfillment, and you're going to see there are 16 titles up here on the board, which we're going to go to and talk about, relative to 16 different views within fulfillment eschatology of how it's seen. Now, we, I, I taught when we started off Revelation, there's the idealist view, there's the historicist view, there's the futurist view, and there's the preterist view. But the subset in the preterist view are, I can see 16 different views that are out there under that umbrella. And you have the same thing with the futurist view. You have similar things with the historicist view and less things with the idealist view. So when it comes to eschatology, if anyone says... You have to believe this way to be a Christian. Tell them you know where you can get pot cheaper. Because they're insane. The body of views on eschatology is so huge that the study of Revelation is... I mean, I think we've tried to give it our best shot to figure out what this thing is saying. But still... It is, so, it is evidence to me that God said, you know what, I'm going to make things difficult for you to really pin down. Why? Because I want you to get along. And if you are going to be like scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and attack each other over things, I'm going to show you how ridiculous you are in doing it because I am not going to make it clear cut. We have some of the greatest minds in the world in the four camps, let alone the other 16 camps ad nauseum. But I think it's going to be interesting to you, it, when we, and I'm just going to cover the first three. And what I'm going to cover about each one really quickly is the nature and time of the parousia. That's when Jesus comes and abides and returns. The nature and time of the resurrection under each view. The nature and time of the rapture or the gathering. The nature and time of the millennium. 
Is salvation ongoing is a question to ask with these under preterism. Is this a universalist approach? Because that's what happens when you speak of fulfillment. You automatically go down a somewhat quasi-universalist bent, which is what you get accused of. I am not a universalist. All roads do not lead to God. I, only Christ Jesus is what gets us to God. Let that be clear. But within that eschatology of fulfillment or preterism, universalism comes into play, and that's why it's one of the things. And finally, or not finally, what does it mean today? And then what are the unique characteristics of each of those? So let's start out and talk about charismatic preterism. Now, charismatic preterism was popularized by someone named Maurice Perry. And the nature and time of the parousia, A, right? Judgment upon those that killed the apostles and prophets in 70 AD. That's, that's what they say. The nature and time of the second coming and Jesus abiding. The time of the resurrection. The temple's destruction signifies that the resurrection of the dead began in 70 AD. So again, you're going to have some consistency because it's fulfillment. Nature and time of the rapture, same as above, 70 AD as per Revelation 14, 13. Nature and time of the millennium. There's no definitive point as to when the millennium begins. This is typical within the preterist view because everybody else, well, all millennialists don't believe this, but many people say the millennium is 1,000 years and all millennialists and don't believe that and neither do preterists. It's a representative set of time, so they get rid of that 1,000 years bit. But there is a definitive point as to when it ended. The beginning of the millennium coincides with Revelation 12.1. So those of you who take notes at home, some of you do that and you ask questions, this is what it is. Salvation, is it ongoing today? Yes, it is in this charismatic view. Is it universalism? No, it's not. What continues on today in the charismatic preterist view? The kingdom and the way to enter the kingdom is to be born again. So I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm on there with most things that they're saying here. Not much of a difference. The unique characteristics of this view. Now this is where it gets charismatic preterism. Why would they call it charismatic? Well, what's a charismatic Christian? They are sign people. They're tongues people. They're healings people. Snake handling at the far uh, extremes. So Jesus brought the kingdom and the benefits of the kingdom to this earth is how they see it. Signs, wonders, miracles, healings, deliverance were all benefits of the kingdom and have a supernatural God living in our midst and still operating through them. So under the umbrella of preterism, we have charismatic preterists who are super big on spiritual gifts being brought to the earth when the establishment of the kingdom occurred. So if someone says, well, if everything's fulfilled, are spiritual gifts fulfilled? A charismatic preterist would say, no, they continue on because the Holy Spirit is with us. To me, almost all of these views are the result under the preterist umbrella of certain people not being willing to really say everything is fulfilled. It's certain people who say, I really appreciate the preterist view, the fulfillment view. It makes so much sense. There's so much proof, blah, blah, blah. But I just want to believe that I can still speak in tongues. And so they focus on that and they say the spiritual gifts are still manifest. 
as a side note, some of you may know that there are many Christian churches, downright scholarly scholars and downright lovely Christians who say the spiritual gifts are dead. Um, I don't think they're dead, but people say that in the faith, and they're accepted. I don't think they're dead. I think they're abused sometimes, but I think they're there. Okay, comprehensive grace is the next category. It's the second of three that we'll cover, and then we'll get out of here. Pantalism. It's popularized by Eric Bolden. Nature and time of the Parousa, 70 AD, destruction of the temple, and the end of the age. Similar. Nature and time of resurrection. Physical for the dead saints at 70 AD alone. He probably believes this because of the passage in Matthew. Physical for the dead saints then. Not sure about the rest of the dead is what their stance is. Uh, the nature and time of the rapture. The rapture was physical, literal, at 70 AD of the saints on earth who had gone through the tribulation with Nero heaping his stuff upon them. They were raptured up by Christ at his coming. He took his bride. That's what the comprehensive grace position says. Uh, nature and time of the millennium. <laughs> uh, uh, 40-year New Testament period. So they, they, where it starts is different for everybody. Some say it starts when Jesus was baptized. Some say the millennium, the 40-year period started when Jesus was uh, ascended. Uh, and, uh, and there's different starting times, but most of them end somewhere around or before 70 AD. Is there ongoing salvation today? Salvation is secured and unconditional. That's the only response I can get from them. Universalism, technically... It might not be since some suffer the second death in this view. Um, so that throws that one out. And then what continues today? Unconditional nature of the redemption, meaning the condition of the redemption for human beings is believe on Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit, be redeemed to God, and continue on. All right, unique characteristics, just what I've already told you. Now we're going to come to the one that I relate to thus far the most, it is popularized today by Don Preston. I never knew really what Don Preston totally believes, but when I have studied through this this past two weeks, uh, covenant eschatology, that is what I'm changing my view to. It's always been preterist, full preterist. Now I'm a covenantal eschatologist because I'm sick of being called a pedophile. Uh, so covenant eschatology, that's the view that I think we have been talking about and proving through scripture. Here we go. Covenant eschatology celebrates God's victory in the redemption. Victory is a big word. His reconciliation and restoration of what was lost by the entrance of sin and death through Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I'm going to throw out uh, scriptural passages to support that. Romans 5.12 and Romans 6.23 support that view. The symphony of God's purpose of the ages, Ephesians 3.11, is traced through the progressive unfolding of redemptive history, having been promised before the ages began. That's Titus 1.2. From Genesis to Revelation, that's why Moses has a, a revelation that speaks in Genesis 3 of her seed will crush his head. That was a prophecy that we know this is going to unfold, and it started all the way back in Genesis. The grand climax of God's purpose that brings about the restoration of all things 
Acts 3.21, occurs during the fullness of times. I'm doing this because I'm giving quotes from this. Ephesians 1.10, and the last days. Now, the last days, you want to just remember where it comes from. Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, and he says, listen, Joel said in Joel 2, this will happen. Your young men will dream dreams. Your have visions. And he says, this has happened today. So Joel says, in the last days, these things will happen. And Peter says, this is happening right now. That's Acts 2, 16 through 21. So we have the full climax of everything God has brought about through the New Testament and Old Testament narrative happening between uh, Acts chapter 3, 2, excuse me, and Jesus coming back in 70 AD. That's the full period. This period of time ushers in the arrival of a new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah 65, 17, 66, 22, 2 Peter 3, 13, Revelation 21, 1 through 4. We're going to talk about that when we get there. The new Jerusalem is the dwelling place for all of the redeemed. Okay, where's the new Jerusalem? It's in heaven. Okay, now there may be citizenship of it here, but the new Jerusalem's in heaven. One clarification on that. Some people think when you talk about the new Jerusalem, you're talking about streets paved with gold in heaven with an actual wall around the city. It may just be the only way to describe what it will be like for us to understand. It may be completely spiritual and none of those stuff, none of those things imposed upon it. The nature and time of the parousia uh, is covenant eschatology understands the word parousia to mean both the presence and arrival associated with it in conjunction with the wrapping up of everything that God had revealed from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. The nature and time of the resurrection. Covenant eschatology teaches that the resurrection of the dead was corporate and covenantal in nature. It was the hope of Israel, Acts 28, 20, foretold by the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah 26, Ezekiel 37, Hosea 13, and during the last days, Joel 2, which I just mentioned, and then fulfilled in Acts 2, and involved two stages of one resurrection. This is important. From sin, resurrection from sin death that entered through the world through Adam. That's the first part. So that would happen. In fact, you taught me about this. Uh, that, that resurrection begins here on earth when we uh, receive Christ. That you're born again and that resurrection begins here. In other words, the resurrection was a process that began at Pentecost in the history of the church and it was completed with the end of the age in 70 A.D. corporately. Um, resurrection was out from the natural body, Old Covenant, the natural body, Old Covenant, and into a spiritual body, New Covenant, as supported by the writings of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Another reason why I believe that our resurrection is spiritual and that the physical of the Old Testament was embodied in the physical resurrection of Christ, who fulfilled the law. He would have a material resurrection, but for us, all things are spiritual as dictated by the New Testament. So we enter into a completely spiritual resurrection. And this is another reason why I like covenantal eschatology. With the death of the Messiah, the natural body is sown, planted, and with the consummation of the age, the spiritual body, bodies began to be raised. Okay. Now one quick thing. In preterism, there's two general views. One says there will be individuals resurrected with their individual spiritual body. Another one says 
we are resurrected corporately into the body of Christ. In other words, we are cells, so to speak, in the spiritual body of Christ on high. We're all part of that organism. We might be individual cells, but we are part of that, and that's our existence. It's in his spiritual body hereafter. So we relate to everybody on a spiritual sense as being connected because we're part of his spiritual body. Those are the two general views in the preterist understanding of the resurrection itself. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, God called out the remnant of Israel. We read about that in Acts. In advance of Jesus coming back, and they would be a chosen generation, and the 144,000 are the first fruits of that church. The gospel of Christ was extended to every nation, tribe, and people, Revelation 7, 9, and to bring about the fullness of the Gentiles at that time. This was all fulfilling Old Testament uh, scripture. And to accomplish the deliverance of all Israel, is put in quotations, Romans eleven twenty six. The reign of Christ during the last days was to bring about the defeat, total victory and defeat of sin and death. Let me re repeat that. In covenantal eschatology, the reign of Christ in those last days coming and reigning over was celebrating the victory he had of over sin and death. That means no more sin, no more death is the way it is seen in this. Um, at the end of that age, the end of 70 AD, those who had died from the time of Adam to Eve onward were released from Sheol, Hades, what we call hell. Again, at the end of the age, 70 AD, when Christ returns, those who had died between Adam all the way out to that time were in Sheol or Hades, and they were released at that time. Those righteous received eternal life in the presence of God, while those unrighteous were sentenced to everlasting cutting off from the presence of God in destruction. I don't believe that personally, so this is where I differ with covenantal eschatology. So I'm not a complete covenantal eschatologist. I'm a covenantal eschatologist with an asterisk, a 17th group. The New Testament, I mean the New Jerusalem which is in heaven, is the covenantal dwelling place for the redeemed. It's the covenantal dwelling place for the redeemed who will then live in God's presence again either as separate individual spirit bodies or as a as a part of the corporate body of Christ the corporal not corporal the corporate body of Christ the nature and time of the gathering or rapture covenant eschatology teaches that the nature of the gathering second Thessalonians 2 1 was the time when the change or transformation of believers with sin death was completed out from the old covenant of the body of death and into the covenant of new life and righteousness, 2 Corinthians 3 and Romans 8.29. And it was the time of the resurrection and glorification of believers. It was the emerging of the new covenant out of the old covenant in the new birth for Israel, John 3, 3 through 5, and for those who entered into Israel as spiritual beings, because not all who are Israel are called Israel. The nature and time of the millennium in, in uh, covenantal eschatology teaches that the thousand years of Revelation 20 is a recapitulation. We talked about that when we covered it. Is it, when it talks about the thousand years, is it telling us something that will be, or is John explaining everything that has happened 
and covenantal eschatology says it's a recapitulation of things that have happened, showing God's victory over the enemies of death leading up to the final chapters of Revelation. Um, now, just to pause really quickly, a thousand years represents a complete period of time to covenantal eschatologists, and the last days to them is a 40-year period as well. Uh, the defeat of Satan, sin, death, and resurrection all fell under things that will shortly come to pass in the scripture. Again, the defeat of Satan, sin, death, the resurrection, all fall under things which must shortly come to pass, as it says in Revelation 1.1, and it was a fulfillment of the things at hand, as it says in Revelation 1.3. Now, I want to just pause here quickly. As I said, Don Preston who Wendy introduced me to, it actually helped change my uh, overall views of uh, eschatology. He'll stand nose to nose with anybody. He's feared. People don't want to even talk to him. He's so knowledgeable about the stuff. He spent his life. He was a, a Church of Christ guy, and he was asked to teach on end times at the Church of Christ. He said, okay. He started to study, and his eyes were open. He's, and he got kicked out of the Church of Christ as a pastor the Church of Christ, because he said, I got to teach what it says. He couldn't believe the things that it taught. Uh, so you can check him out, uh, Don Preston. I don't know how to do it. Maybe Wendy? YouTube Don Preston. We're so formal here. Ongoing salvation in this idea of covenantal eschatology. We're almost done. It teaches that salvation or deliverance is now an accomplished reality. The process of redemptive history was completed when Christ appeared the second time apart from sin for salvation. Hebrews 9.28, that's a radical thought. Some people aren't going to like that. Christ came to make an end of sins. Daniel 9.24, when he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9.26, at the end of the age. The justification for that, as I'm sure you well know, is that Jesus, the law, was nailed to the cross. The law and the ordinances were nailed to the cross. Jesus died. He took the law. He fulfilled it righteously. And therefore, Hebrews says that, that uh, the end of sin, Daniel says that it was the end of sin when he put away sin by the sacrifice by himself. Now, how do, how do you justify that? We see sin going on all the time. I sin my every step almost, right? How do you justify that? He did it because he put the law away. And it goes back to the old thing we always say. Put a law up, you've got yourself sin. Take the law down, sin disappears. No law, no sin. Law, sin. And so that is what it means by that. Now, can we uh, grieve the Holy Spirit? Can we fail to love? Can we fall in our faith? Of course, of course, of course. But the sin that keeps us separate from God paid for once and for all. What keeps us separate, separate from God in the age of grace is our failing to fa have faith, to, to refusing to believe, and failing to love, which were Jesus' commandments. Love. So that is the stuff that we'll be held up for. And it's like James says, if we don't do what we know we should, that is sin. So it's more in the terms of not commission anymore, because our flesh will always commit sins of commission. It's sins of omission, that I knew I should do this, but I said no. That's what, uh, how James defines sin. And when we know we should do something, that would fall in the Christian's world under the category of loving. 
I know I should love. And how do we love? The sugar house way? No. We love the Jesus way. That we die to flesh. We turn the cheek. We're patient. We're long-suffering. That is the true definition of love through the life of Christ. So that's how, what he means when he's saying that. And it's hard for people who see the world in terms of sin, still sinning, still sinning, to understand that. Those who enter the everlasting covenant, Hebrews 13, 20, in response to the everlasting gospel, are in Christ a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and are in a relationship with God where there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh, according to Romans 8. So that's what they say. Universalism, covenant eschatology teaches that this approach is an opportunity, not a determination. That this is an opportunity, and I like this a lot, that what Christ has done in fulfilling everything for us is that everyone has an opportunity to enter into the body of Christ or into the new Jerusalem on high. And it's merely by faith. That opportunity is there. It's not universalism. It's not determinism. <coughs> it's an opportunity. And I, I love that about it. What continues on today, covenant eschatology teaches that the purpose of the end of the age was to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And something you guys know I believe in fully because of Hebrews saying God one more time would shake everything so the only thing that can remain cannot be shaken. And uh, that would be spiritual things. And so it believes that at the end of the age was to usher in this new heaven and new earth, Second Peter 3, uh, Revelation 21, Isaiah 65, 17, Isaiah 66, 22. The new Jerusalem remains the covenant dwelling place for believers, reiterated. The kingdom of God is established. The kingdom of God is established. The glorious church continues as a community for believers to work together, build one another, and reach out to those in need is the way they define it. The goal remains of healing all nations and to invite others into a covenantal relationship with God where deliverance from bondage and brokenness are found. Believers continue to grow into maturity as they walk with Christ daily in following what is found and revealed in the Word of God. I love all that. The only thing I don't like is that position, and I think I sense this when I uh, have talked to Don Preston, which has only been a couple times. It's kingdom building, and that's justified as... Um, as what we're trying to do is to sanctify the world through religion and that that's the kind of the onus is to turn this all into a Christian world. And I don't, I don't believe that's possible. I think we're going the other way. I think that there are less and less who are going to embrace him. And I think there are fewer and fewer, not more and more, as things get tougher and tougher in our world. So I, I don't see that as God not having the victory. His victories are spiritual. Covenantal eschatology seems to imply a kingdom now philosophy, which is the sanctification of everything through Christianity and politics. It's what the LDS would also vie for, kind of a theonomy or a theocratic system. And I see that, and I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that part. Uh, unique characteristic of the view, last part, covenant eschatology maintains an inseparable framework of what occurred during the last days between the cross and 70 AD. That framework is everything to them. The emphasis on the corporate aspect of fulfillment 
are to the promises made to the fathers being fulfilled. The deliverance of all Israel is inextricably linked in those last days, that window I just talked about. And it's for the glorification of those who are truly Israel, including Gentiles who join in the tribe by adoption. So we're going to stop there. And upon stopping with only a few minor tweaks, uh, I like covenant eschatology. We'll quickly hit on the other 13 as we open next week. And then we will move on to those three passages that I mentioned um, in Job, in Isaiah, and in uh, Romans that seem to speak of a physical resurrection. And after those things, beat the horse dead. We're going to continue our verse by verse, finishing out Revelation 20 and move into 21. Questions or comments? You guys have been great because we've got it in the can. This has been endless, but we've got it in the can. Brother Adam Guyman, also known as Snoring Sam, which I would like to do as well. Well, one of the things I noticed is you said that that uh, the other people where you were talking about how how they're raised versus being resurrected, yeah. and you explained how the when the so when those earthquakes took place. People who are dead, I don't know if it completely means that they were able to get up and walk like you see in the movies, how people oh. walk around. Their bodies were just in the ground, but as the earth shook, their bodies just rose up out of the ground. Ooh. But that doesn't always mean that, I mean, because obviously if they were, if their bodies were dead, that doesn't mean that their spirit hasn't had that opportunity to see, because at that moment, Jesus when Jesus himself was resurrected, you know, because Jesus is the only one that had that he had the been resurrected. Right. So when he came out of the grave within those three days, they were able to see that before maybe passing over to the other side. So that would probably even say that spirits probably have the ability to or those spirits have had that ability to be able to be on the earth and like overshadowing us, for example, before moving on to the presence of God, you know, in that sense, the presence of God. But they didn't, because Jesus is God in the flesh, when Jesus was resurrected, the uh, people before that point in time were probably around on the earth. If you know what I'm saying. I don't know about the full thing, but I did get something that's interesting. You said is that maybe the earthquake shook the bodies up from the earth and many people saw them. The only problem with that, and it's a kind of interesting approach, is that it says, and they went into Jerusalem or saw by many people. And so yeah. they would be, unless they were drawn, dragged in there by others to see, I don't know. I, I, that would almost have to be, if you're logically thinking about it, they would have either someone else saw that and either ran into the city and said, "Hey, there's bodies that have, right? You know, they're they're raised, they're out Propped of up. they're, you know, they're out of the ground." Yeah, interesting. Thank you, Adam Guyman. Over to the other side. Grant, are you raising your hand or is that just loading your gun? <laughs> 
Hi, Sean. This is Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. I, I just have a comment to add. Um, I feel that we as believers should be like Paul and preach a message of hope and uh, peace and light with boldness to a world that is struggling with the struggles that we have and uh, to help people heal you know we are broken people broken by sin and that's what Jesus came to do which we can't do but I feel like we have our it's our duty to as as Christians to spread that message amen to the world and I agree it with confidence and love not a place of condemnation but from a place of love love it brother who else David oh Jason Hi, Sean. Um, this is more about the book of Revelation in general. I was wondering if through your many hours of research and non, you know, um, tireless dedication to the book, uh, have you been able to determine if through studying maybe the history of the book itself, how exactly the, the book was brought forth to the body in general? Uh, were the letters collected from each of the ch seven churches and compiled? Or Don't know. Was there anybody in particular who was in charge of bringing it? We covered that when we covered verse chapter 3 about when the uh, bishop or the person at the churches received the letter or letters. But I don't remember what we said. Uh, and I don't know about the dissemination. And I don't know about, uh, we do know, of course, that the reception of the book was not immediate in the church. Most people did not believe it all the way out to Luther, did not think that it had a place. So it's been up and down, and that's why I stood up. I'm not sure it even belongs in here. I am convinced it belongs here now, but in terms of your question, I don't know, Jason. So how, I mean, how, what was the first time that, the, that all the books kind of got put together into a New Testament? About 245 by one particular group of people or that's when they were all present but there were some that were included in that that turned out to be spurious so but we had the the collection of what ultimately came what we use today as protestants uh about 245 245 years after christ so about 200 years after his ascension but you don't know any names of people that no but were it's there i think there, there's books out there where people have done that oh, i can okay. tell you Great. And these guys did this, yeah. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. David. This is David. Uh, the, you, you used one word for resurrection and the other for this rising. Yeah. Uh, did you know that in Matthew 28, 6, when Jesus came out of the tomb, that it uses that E-G-E-R-T-H-E? instead of resurrection. Ooh. So resurrection would have been when he rose into Ooh. the clouds, right? Ooh. And so this rising is different than resurrection, oh. I, th I think. Mm. So anyway, just something to that adds a twist. look at. That's a good thing to look at. I'll check that out if I can over the week. Hmm. So they're kind of used in both situations, or at least in one situation, where Jesus gets both, the rising and the resurrection. The other guys just get the rising. Anybody else? Grant, do you have a con concern? I'm confused. <laughs> well, Grant, 
We don't want to talk about what's always been. We want to talk about new things. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Lord, we're uh, grateful for the things we learn, and we just pray we will be people of faith. Never let, don't let these things, this learning or supposed learning, get into our heads and, and let it uh, get into our hearts if it's real and if it's right and if it's of the Spirit and it's truth and move us to greater faith and greater love. We pray for those who, uh, uh, in our midst right now, we, we rejoice that we have Don who has had miraculous recoveries from cancer. We have Mary who's had a miraculous hip replacement and is walking among us. And uh, these are like similar events of people who are raised up by your miraculous spirit. So we know there conti it continues to go on amongst us. And we're, we're, we thank you when we see these modern day miracles. It's a miracle that any of us really would be here on a Sunday when we could be doing other things. Uh, your change in the human heart, Lord, is the miracle too. So we pray that, like Jonathan said, we'll be able to share that message of peace for the healing of the nations. And we'll be a light, a city set on a hill. We'll be able to do those things you want us to do. This is the choir here. We have our beliefs. We have our walk. And uh, we just pray we'll be fortified by our meeting together and talking like this. We pray for Brock, who's going, getting ready to go to law school. I pray for my daughter Delaney, who's out on the road on a, 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 something for her degree back east. And pray that they'll be safe in their travels. Pray for everybody who's in need and of different things that aren't mentioned here. We pray for Diana and her health and her loneliness and her overcoming uh, the decay of her physical body. Doesn't seem like there's any medical answer for her now, but, but a little bit of discomfort and suffering. And we just pray that your spirit will be with her. So help us to move forward this week out of this room and out into the world and the things that you call us to do, to be satisfied with the blessings you give us, to be able to abide wherever you place us and be grateful along the way. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.